We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbours for their good to build them up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us, so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus had, so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, so that the promises made to the patriarchs might be confirmed, and moreover, that the Gentiles might glorify God for his mercy. As it is written, Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing the praises of your name. Again it says, Rejoice you Gentiles with his people. And again, Praise the Lord, you all you Gentiles, let all the peoples extol him. And again, Isaiah says, The root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. In him, the Gentiles will hope. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Well, if you close your Bibles, please do open them and turn back to Romans 15 as we look at those verses that Heather read uh, for us. Uh, so it's, that's page 1141, if you need to find it again, at Romans uh, 15. I wonder if you've uh, ever played the game, A Question of Scruples. I think it came out in the 90s. It's all about guessing what people are prepared to do or not prepared to do in different situations. So it's a card game in which players are, are presented with different moral dilemmas. And you have to guess whether someone's answer will be yes, no, or depends. Uh, now, it's a game like that might be fun. And you learn a lot about people playing a game like that. Uh, but it's often not such fun in real life particularly amongst Christians, when Christians find each other drawing the lines in different places. I would do that. No, I wouldn't do that. Things can get tense. Relationships can get strained. Fellowship can get threatened. And as you've seen on the last couple of Sundays, this was an issue in the church in Rome when Paul wrote this letter to them. So at chapter 14, verse 1, Paul begins to address the problems created by what he calls disputable matters. Issues about which Christians in the church held different opinions, different viewpoints, where things were a matter of debate and difference. Now, Paul is quite clear that anything that compromises the gospel is not a matter for debate. So, in a different situation, when Paul heard heard that certain men were trying to... Uh, compel Gentile Christians to be circumcised and to keep the Jewish law, he opposed them fiercely in his letter to the churches in Galatia. 
their teaching undermined the gospel of God's grace and Paul opposed them. Paul was equally uncompromising about issues of morality about which God had clearly spoken. So as far as Paul is concerned, there are lines that can't be moved. There are actions which are always wrong for Christians or always right for Christians. There are things where there are solid lines. But there are also disputable matters. We can see the difference with an issue like alcohol. So Ephesians 5.18 says, do not get drunk on wine. That is a solid line that cannot be moved, that there is no place for drunkenness in the life of a believer. However, whether or not to drink any alcohol at all is a disputable matter. But alcohol is just one example. Historically, the issues over which Christians have drawn the lines in different places is very long. It includes food, dress, jewellery, cosmetics, what you should and shouldn't do on a Sunday, celebrating Christmas, giving wedding rings, listening to radio, watching TV, going to the cinema, going to pubs and clubs, playing cards, dancing, musical instruments in church meetings or no musical instruments in church meetings, ways of doing things in church in general. We might add what books you let your children read to Harry Potter or not to Harry Potter. What box sets you watch on Netflix. How you discipline your children. How you parent your children in general. Let me just give you one last example that's probably uh, closer to, to the issue in the church in Rome when Paul wrote this letter to them. Just suppose you live in a neighborhood with lots of Muslims so a large local Muslim population, and and you know or you suspect that a lot of the meat sold in the local butchers, even in in the supermarkets, is halal meat. Do you eat it or not? If it's halal meat, it means that that, that as part of the process, words of, of Islamic dedication, acknowledging Allah, will have been said at the time of slaughter of the animal that the meat comes from. Does that give you an uneasy conscience about eating the meat? Now now that last example is probably getting quite close to to what was going on here in, in Rome. The divisions within the church were to do with food and with the observance of certain days, of sacred days. And the root of the problem was almost certainly a difference between, as you've been seeing, Christians with a Jewish background and those with a pagan Gentile background. That becomes really evident in the verses we look at this morning. And Paul refers to the two different groups as the weak and the strong. Now, when Paul says that some in the church are weak, he's not referring to weakness of will or weakness of character, but a certain sort of weakness of faith. The weak were probably mainly Jews who'd grown up with strict Jewish food laws and strict Sabbath observance and so on. And the coming of Jesus into the world had radically changed things with regard to food and days diet and days. Jesus had declared all foods clean. He had fulfilled the Sabbath and all the Jewish uh, festivals so they didn't have to be kept anymore. But those whose faith was weak had not fully grasped the implications of the coming of Christ. 
their faith was not strong enough to allow them to exercise their full freedom in these matters. Their consciences would not let them eat non-kosher food. Neither would their consciences allow them to break the Sabbath or, or stop observing Jewish festivals. By contrast, the strong, they were full of freedom. They were probably mostly Gentiles who'd never been constrained by these rules about days and diet, and perhaps also some of the Jewish Christians whose new Christian faith had allowed them to overcome their scruples in these matters. Paul himself fitted that category. He was a Jew, brought up in a very strict context, but he counts himself amongst the strong by beginning chapter five, uh, sorry, chapter 15 with these words, we who are strong. Paul counts himself amongst the strong. But these differences between the weak and the strong can create a great deal of tension in the church. And these tensions threaten the unity of the church. And tensions like this over one issue or another, and probably in your small groups over the past sort of couple of weeks, you've been discovering what some of those issues might be. But that, that those sort of issues will always be a threat to the unity and the harmony of the church. So we need to pay careful attention to what is said here in this final section. This is, this is like part three of a three-part mini-series, okay? Uh, I've enjoyed listening to Don Bawtree and, and Tim Gage preaching the first two parts. Go back and listen to that if you've not heard it. Here we come to part three. We need to pay careful attention to what Paul says in this section because there are some weighty things for us here. And what we'll find is this is really a call to costly but God-glorifying hope strengthening unity do you want to enjoy hope strengthening unity do you want God to be glorified well pay attention and it begins here this 15th chapter with a word to the strong put others first follow Christ in bearing the cost of God glorifying worship Throughout, Paul has been mainly addressing the strong, those whose understanding of the gospel gives them a greater liberty. Uh, and in chapter 15, verses 1 and 2, he summarizes what he has been saying to the strong. He says, we who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please our neighbors for their good to build them up. Notice the weight of obligation lies with the strong. It is the strong who have the responsibility to help the weak. Not to use their strength, not to use their greater liberty of conscience to crush the weak, but rather to bear with the failings of the weak. We are to build others up and not to destroy the work of God for the sake of food or clothing or any such thing. But that might require me to curtail my freedom. Not pleasing myself, but pleasing my neighbour. Now Paul here, he's not talking about the person who lives next door to you in the house or the flat next door. He's talking about really more the person in the seat next to you. Or just the other side of the, of, of the church here. Your fellow Christian in the church. But he says, 
neighbour, I think, because love your neighbour as yourself sums up the law's commands regarding our relations with one another. Uh, As he says back in chapter 13, verse 10, love does no harm to a neighbour. Here we're concerned with your neighbour in church. So if the exercise of your freedom would cause your brother or sister distress or cause them to stumble in their Christian walk, then you will act to please them, not to please yourself. You will exercise a restriction or you will restrict the exercise of your freedom for the sake of their conscience. But containing my freedom for the sake of others is costly. It means denying ourselves. Perhaps denying our families some perfectly good thing for the sake of a weaker brother or sister. Putting others first is always costly. And and so Paul goes on to motivate the strong with the example of Christ. You see verse 3. For even Christ did not please himself. But as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. Paul reminds us of the cost which Christ himself bore for us. Jesus took on himself the full force of the rebellion of human beings against God. Those insults and much worse. Instead of pleasing himself, he he bore the insults of those who insult God. Uh, And Paul quotes here from Psalm 69, the testimony of a righteous man who bears unjust suffering for God's sake because he is filled with zeal for the house of God. And it's a psalm that's fulfilled by Christ. The psalm is in effect the testimony of Jesus Christ. It speaks of the cost of the incarnation, of Christ becoming man, of Christ coming to his own and finding that his own would not receive him. It's the cost of Calvary, bearing the insults of those who passed by, mocking him as he hung on the cross. But but Christ endured it all for the sake of the house of God, that is, for the church. He bore it to create and to cleanse the Jew-Gentile church. As Paul puts it in Ephesians 2, he died to unite Jew and Gentile together in one body and in that one body to reconcile them to God, thus creating the church, a holy temple in which God lives by his Spirit. And it was zeal for God's house, for the church, that motivated Christ to bear the cost of our salvation. And so, here in Romans 15, Paul sets the example of Christ before us. He calls us to surrender our self-interest and to look for the interests of those around us, to love our neighbour for the sake of the church. Next time you face some, some cost, it might be a small cost, it might be a large cost, but some cost that you must bear for the sake of your brother or sister in church and for the unity of the church, think of Christ and the cost that he bore. If anyone had the right or the freedom to please himself, it was Christ.
but he didn't. Even Christ did not please himself. And think of his zeal for the house of God and pray that God might give you the same passion for the church and for God to be glorified in his church. Now Paul knows that this is not easy and and so he directs us in verse 4 to the word of God. There's the source of endurance and encouragement. Do you see verse 4? And see how it begins with the word for, F-O-R? For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through the endurance taught in the scriptures and the encouragement they provide, we might have hope. It is study of God's word that will teach us to endure, including bearing the cost of living together in the family of God with all of our differences. It's the Bible that will keep on encouraging us as we do so. And as we'll see, the end result is hope. But not only do we need God's word, we need God's help. God helping us through his word. And so Paul prays in verse 5, May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you the same attitude of mind toward each other that Christ Jesus has. We will only enjoy the the spirit of unity that comes from following the example of Christ when we are being instructed by God's word and helped by God himself in our churches. When God is at work through his word. But do you see the end goal? This is important. So look at verse 6. Do you see the end goal? It's so that with one mind and one voice you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. The ultimate goal of all of this is the glory of God. It is the church glorifying God through its united praise and worship that being of one mind the church with one voice might glorify God. That doesn't mean having the same views on every single thing. Differences over disputable matters will remain. But but being of one mind, in gospel-motivated love, and in pleasing others, not pleasing self, and so genuinely united in giving glory to God. So first, a word to the strong. Put others first. Follow Christ in bearing the cost of God-glorifying worship. And then secondly, a word to us all. Accept one another. Follow Christ in aligning yourselves with God's glorious purpose. See verse 7. Accept one another then just as Christ accepted you in order to bring praise to God. This is the general principle, not just for the strong, but for everyone in the church. You deserved rejection and condemnation, but Christ has accepted you. So accept your Christian brother or sister, whoever they are, whatever your difference is, because God has accepted them in Christ and Christ has accepted you. Our our attitude to them is to mirror God's attitude to us. And Paul says, do this in order to bring praise to God. 
do this in order to align yourself with God's glorious purpose in Christ to create the church, one people united in the praise of God. And that's the point of verses 8 to 12. See, in verse 8 and 9, Paul tells us that Christ became a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth, that's on behalf of the gospel, with a twin purpose. First purpose, to confirm to the Jews the promises made to the patriarchs. There's echoes of Romans chapters 9 to 11 there, if you've been through the whole series in Romans. God's word to the Jews has not failed. That's the first purpose, to confirm the promises made to the Jews. Second purpose, so that the Gentiles too might glorify God for his mercy. So the big picture that Paul did not want the Roman Christians to lose sight of, in all of this wrangling over diet and days, was that the eternal purposes of God, as recorded in every part of the Old Testament, were at stake. That God's purpose is to have one people drawn from every nation who will praise him with one heart and one mouth. And so for any local church to be odds with itself or at odds with other genuine gospel churches over disputable matters runs counter to the purposes of God. What is more, it, it robs God of glory. Paul's great concern here is that Gentile believers would glorify God together with Jewish believers and that this would not be tainted or undermined by disunity or disharmony through lack of love. Christians are to glorify God with one heart and one mouth. They are to accept one another, to bring glory to God so they can praise God, they can rejoice in God, they can hope in God together. So the bottom line is that Paul was concerned about the way that Christians in Rome and in every church handled disputable matters because he was concerned about the glory of God. I'm so wrapped up in myself, but Paul's concerned with the glory of God. And that needs to be our concern too. And notice how Paul refers to Christ becoming a servant in verse 8. He served the Jews so that God's purposes among the Gentiles might be fulfilled. I think this is a masterstroke. Once again, Paul is setting before us the example of Christ who acted to serve others. He became a servant of others. And he's also, he's telling the Gentiles in the church to serve their Jewish Christian brothers and sisters, as Christ did. And he's telling the Jews in the church that Gentile inclusion was always part of God's purpose. And so they should love the fact that there are Gentiles alongside them, singing God's praise. Not thinking how awkward these Gentiles are making things, but loving the fact that they are there. So whoever else is in the church, whatever your differences with them over disputable matters, be prepared to serve them. Uh, in a few minutes, as we stand to, to, to sing, look around you 
and love the fact that God has brought us all together, whatever our, our differences, whatever divides we've come from, that God has brought us together through the gospel into one people praising him. Paul would want us to love that fact. God wants us to love that. And then resolve to accept one another. And follow Christ in aligning yourself with God's glorious purpose. Now we might think we're done there, but finally Paul rounds off this whole section with a prayer for the church. For overflowing hope. as God fills us with the joy and peace that comes through believing the gospel. And here we come to what is for me the most surprising element in the whole passage. It's Paul's emphasis in this context on hope. We've already had the hope the scriptures produce at the end of verse 4. And then the final line of verse 12 says, In him the Gentiles will hope. And now Paul finishes the whole section by praying in verse 13, May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Now I think if I were writing a letter to motivate Christians to accept one another in spite of their differences over where they draw the line on certain issues I don't think I would write about hope. But under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit this is Paul's insight that the the surprising outcome of putting the apostles' teaching into practice in our churches will be hope. Now, I I think it works like this. I've been thinking about this. I think it works like this. That that the immediate fruit of the strong enduring the cost of bearing with the weak and everyone accepting one another for the glory of God will be joy and peace in the church. The joy and peace that comes through believing the gospel. Trusting in God and acting in line with the truth of the gospel. And we can see that, can't we? That, that, that if we ignore Paul's instructions here, that there'll just be distress and there will be division and we won't experience the joy and peace. Follow them and there will be joy and peace. But this in turn will lead to the strengthening of our hope. Do you see that important linking word in verse 13? Right there. Halfway through the verse. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that, do you see the so that, you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. That this experience of overflowing hope comes from the enjoyment of peace and joy in the church. Why is that? I think it must be because we're getting a small taste of the age to come. See, in the age to come, after Jesus has returned, we're living together in the new creation, 
all God's people drawn together from every tribe and language and nation will live together in perfect harmony, enjoying righteousness, enjoying perfect peace, rejoicing in God, glorifying God for his wonderful grace. And what a day that will be. What an experience that will be. And it will never end. That's the future. But we can get just a little taste of it now. Here and now, in the local church, we come together from different backgrounds and cultures. We put the gospel into practice. We put others first. We accept one another. We rejoice in God together. We praise him together. With one mind and one voice, we glorify God. And we get just a taste of the eternal future. It's like when you're baking a cake and you get to lick the spoon. You put all the ingredients together, you've mixed it all together, you've poured the cake mixture into the tin, you put the tin into the oven, and that's the moment when you get to lick the spoon. And licking the spoon is not the same thing as eating the cake. But it is just a little taste of what's to come. And in every local church, the more we put these things into practice, the more we get to lick the spoon. Uh, And the more we overflow with the hope the Spirit gives, that hope that's looking forward to the cake to come, the wonderful cake. And so by accepting one another, we are greatly encouraged to press on, to keep trusting, to keep persevering, whatever the cost for you of living for Jesus is, whether it's suffering in the world or coping with differences in the church, we're we're encouraged to press on with living for Christ as we look forward to eating the cake together. And so Paul here, he gives us every possible motivation to do the things he's telling us to do. Above all, to accept one another. We will be following the example of Christ as we love others and bear the cost of doing so. We will be acting in line with God's great gospel purposes. We will be able to glorify God together. We'll enjoy joy and peace together. And we will find our hearts overflowing with hope as we get just a little taste of the glories to come. Do you want your heart overflowing with hope? Then accept one another in order to bring praise to God and experience the joy and peace the gospel brings. This whole section is a call to costly, but God-glorifying, hope-strengthening unity. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. Amen.